Well, how are you tonight? Amen. Enjoyed worshiping with you. Amen. Um, we are in 2 Corinthians tonight, chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. God willing, we're going to cover verses 1 through 6. But we're moving on through this book. It's a powerful book. Remember, we said it's a relevant book because the culture that the Corinthians were in was a wild, out-of-control, permissive culture. I don't know if that would, you know, seem relevant to anything that we live in in this day and age. I don't, I don't know, probably not, but, you know, I'm just taking a poke. But uh, a lot of what they needed to hear, we need to hear. And that's the beauty of the Word of God, even though it's thousands of years old it's still completely relevant because it's not just a book, it's not history, it's not just theology, it's the living, breathing revelation of Jesus Christ to us. From Genesis to Revelation, I want you to get that. All of the Bible is inspired by God, all of it reveals Christ. You say Christ is in the Old Testament? Absolutely, all throughout the Old Testament. In every book, in every psalm, in, e in everything. And that's what the purpose of the drill is here today, that we would hear the word and study the word, not so we could get smarter, not so we could have knowledge, so not so we could puff ourselves up. You know, and, and that's the thing about, you know, knowledge puffs up. But the thing is, we don't approach the word or sit under the word or listen to the word to, to puff ourselves up with knowledge. In fact, if we're really sitting under the word, it, it's going to do more stripping than it is puffing. Amen. So my prayer tonight is that the Holy Spirit would strip us all tonight of self and sin and flesh, and we'd see Jesus a little clearer when we leave tonight than when we did when we walked in. Father, bless the reading of the word tonight. Bless your Holy Scripture, Holy Spirit. Open it up to us and give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that absorb and understand what you are communicating to us through your Holy Word tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name and the church said... 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at a favorable time, I listened to you. And on a day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no reason for taking offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, and in difficulties, in beatings, in imprisonments, in mob attacks. You didn't know the mafia was in the Bible. In labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, and in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers yet untrue, as unknown yet well known, as dying and yet behold, we are alive, as punished and yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. He's giving them what turns out to be a list of the marks of the ministry. We're going to tackle them by God's grace uh, one at a time. We're going to get through a few verses tonight, but uh, here Paul is expressing 
his passion in making converts. Uh, you know, we looked at uh, the other chapter, verse 20 of chapter 5. It says this, Paul expressed passion in, in bringing the gospel. He said, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Do you remember that when we covered the last time? Kind of an interesting verbiage that he uses, kind of an interesting approach. Not, you know, uh, we, we appeal to your intellect. We appeal to your morality. No, we beg you. I want you to catch the passion in there, amen. That, that's, you know, not that we should go around begging people, but we should have that much passion to want people to come to Christ. How many times do we sit with people and they start talking and the stuff that's coming out of their mouth, I sat with someone today and they were telling me about their philosophy, about the last days, and it was like a science fiction movie. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. And I'm thinking, uh, no, oh, no. Uh, and I'm trying to be quiet and not jump in. I try to figure out how I can sum this all up and bring it back to God. But it, it's like we've got to have a passion for lost people because they are completely lost. And if we just sit there and listen and be like, wow, you're crazy, and just go about our business, we don't have what Paul had, what we need to have, and that's a passion to make converts. Now, verse 1 of chapter 6 begins in, in much the same way with passion. And working together with him, listen, here it is, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So he has passion for the lost, and again, he has passion for God's people. What? That don't receive Jesus, don't receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit, don't receive the gifts of God in a way that you just receive it as grace, but you receive it in vain. Getting this tonight? All the gifts, all the blessings, all the second chances, all the things God did for us on the cross and in the empty tomb, we cannot receive all that in vain and let it go to waste. There's got to be passion there. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here he's pleading with us what not to waste the grace of God. First of all, it says working together. And working together, who's he talking about? He's talking about, you know, the Father and the Holy Spirit are working together. And he says, we, who's we? Paul, his companions, his fellow leaders in the church, everyone who had a burden to preach the gospel to the lost. While grace from our creator is an amazing gift the potential to waste it is a very real danger. How many have gotten a second chance that you wasted? How many then got a third chance that, I mean, I don't know. There's some things, I don't know how many chances I've had, but that's the grace of God. How many chances did I deserve? Not even a second chance. But he gave me chance after chance. And here Paul urges us not to push the envelope, not to waste the grace, not to, to take the, the, the gifts and the blessing and the mercy of God in vain. And that's something we need to think about. How many spiritual opportunities and moments of forgiveness and favor have we wasted in life over the years? Paul is encouraging us to maximize those things. We are wise to maximize every opportunity, every second chance, every moment of grace. Why? Because they're a gift from God. They're a precious thing. You wouldn't throw precious things on the floor. You wouldn't take all your jewelry and just throw it out on the lawn. Ladies, anybody? Jewelry? Should I said shoes? What the <laughs> shoes? Kim says shoes. You, but whatever's precious to you, you wouldn't just mistreat it. 
we've got to treat the grace of God uh, for what it really is. It's precious. And if we're reckless and wasteful with it, squandering the potential of it, it breaks the Father's heart. Could you imagine giving a priceless gift to someone and they just kind of open it, look at it, and throw it on the floor and walk away? Wow. Verse 2 is a reference to the Old Testament messianic prophecy found in Isaiah 49.8. Listen to verse 2. <clears throat> Paul is quoting the Old Testament here. It says, For he says, At a favorable time I listened to you. On a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know, this scripture is something that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. He was fully versed in the Old Testament, fully versed in the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. He's actually quoting Isaiah 49.8. Listen to Isaiah 49.8. This is what the Lord says. At a favorable time, I answered you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. And I will watch over you and make you a covenant of my people to restore the land to give as an inheritance the deserted heredity land. So, you know, here's this quote from Isaiah. It's making it into the New Testament. Paul is giving us this, uh, you know, this kind of uh, flashback from the past there, and it's the heart of God. What is it here? That, you know, God wants us to know that today is the day of salvation. You know, there are so many people out there who just say, ah, someday I'll get it right. Someday I'll repent. Someday I'll go to church. Someday I'll come out of my sin. And you know what? Sadly, for so many people, someday never comes. Today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to repent. Today's the day to start over. Today's the day to confess. Today is the day. God, help us to have tender hearts because the Holy Spirit is preparing his bride for his coming. And God help us if we have callous hearts because we're going to be like those foolish virgins who are unprepared. And what a time of panic and disarray for those who resist the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in preparing the bride. The favorable time of the Lord in Isaiah was the coming of the Messiah, speaking of the fact that when Jesus came and died on the cross, he opened up salvation to whosoever will. God listened, past tense. God helped us past tense, and God still is helping and listening us in the present. The last part of verse 2 is so powerful. It's an open door to the church. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. We in the church age here, the, the body of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit, given the gospel and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, now's the time for us to get the job done and reach the lost. Amen. I don't know what you're waiting for out there. I don't know what the church is waiting for. I don't know, you know, I say stuff and it just bounces off. Hello, now's the time to get busy. Are you telling your family? Are you telling your friends? Are you telling that lost neighbor of yours? Because Jesus is coming back. And now's the time. It's a wide open door for us. It wasn't always like that. And it won't always be like that. But it's like that right now. What a beautiful opportunity we have the favorable time, the day of the Lord, the day of salvation. We're living in the church age now. We've got every tool and everything we need to do the job that God saved us for. We are the church, the mechanism God chose to reach the lost with the good news of the gospel. So verse 3, we're having so much fun, we've only known two verses so far. 
Verse 3 continues on here, giving no reason for taking offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. This is, this is an interesting thing here as Paul shifts gears a little bit. He's talking about, you know, this is kind of a principle for Christian living for us. It's what, something that should be applied to all of us because our lifestyle as believers reflects on God and the church and the gospel. When you say to somebody, I'm a Christian, and then we, we act in ways that are contradictory to what a Christian's supposed to be, we become confusing to them. And so Paul is saying here basically that I, I don't want to do anything that would discredit the gospel or discredit the church or discredit Jesus because I represent him. So giving no reason for taking offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. And I want, I want you to grab a hold of that there. It's a, it's a lifestyle issue. It's the way we walk in the eyes of of our generation. Paul and his companions were unwilling to say or do anything that might discredit the gospel. That means he restrained himself. You know, Paul had a right to take wages from the churches and have lodging and have meals, but you know what he chose to do instead? He chose to make tents because he was a tent maker by trade. And he went into places to preach the gospel, and the minister is worthy of his, of his wage. But you know what he said? I don't want to take anything from you, least it discredit the gospel. Least you look at me and go, oh, look at this freeloader. He's coming here for a free room and board. Did he have a right to that stuff? You bet your boots. The Bible says he who preaches and teaches the word is worthy of double honor. What you get paid for in the world, in the kingdom, it's double and there's a reward in heaven. And Paul could have, you know, he could have called his right and said, this is, you know, take care of me, feed me, give me what I need for my journey. No, he said, I'll make tents in 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 the daytime and I'll preach all night. Wow. What's the point of that? So he didn't discredit the gospel. So there was not even one little shade cast on his ministry so that people could criticize or discredit it. Do we love people that much that we would forego our rights and what's due us just to avoid an opportunity to discredit the gospel? Sure, there will always be fault finders and nitpickers no matter what we do. Come on, anybody know some fault finders and nitpickers? I mean, no matter what you do, you say to them, hey, here's 50 bucks. And they'll be like, why not 100? Man, you look great today. I didn't look good yesterday. You know, those people. And I mean, there's no way to please them. You know, and it seems like, you know, sometimes when you do things with the right heart, with the right intentions, there's always going to be somebody that takes a shot at you anywhere. Anyway, he wasn't talking about the fault finders and the nitpickers, but he, he, he was just trying to insulate himself from casting any shade on the gospel. Uh, and, and, you know, people find a whole lot of reasons why they don't want to come to church, why they don't want to receive Jesus, why they, they don't want to surrender their life to God. We shouldn't give them any more fuel to add to that fire. (laughs) You know, when people, and and the problem is, is like when people, you know, judge or nitpick and what they're saying is true, that's a problem, right? When people say, well, Christians are all hypocritical and we are, or Christians are lazy and they they don't want to roll up their sleeves and and, and do their part, and we are. They say Christians are greedy and and they love money. And and you see the, you know, we had movements in the church with, you know, it was all about wealth and it was all about money and the prosperity gospel, and the world looked at the church and go, they're greedy. 
And, and, and ministers preaching these kind of gospels, having these kind of ministries, wound up in jail. So when we're doing what they're accusing of us, that's a problem with us. If they accuse us of stuff that's not true, well, then that's on them. But you and I shouldn't cast any shade on the gospel by the way we live. And when we mess up and when we blow it, we should be humble and transparent and rely on the grace of God and let it be a testimony. You know, too many people think, well, if I mess up and I admit it, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to shame everybody, myself, the church, God. Listen, you know what? Everybody likes a comeback story. Everybody likes an underdog. Everybody likes someone who gets a second chance. When the world sees Christians fall in the mud and, and mess up, the worst thing we could do is get up and say, hey, you can't judge me, only God can judge You know, people get all proud. How about just be humble? How about just be broken? How about just say, you know what? I need God's grace in my life. That gives people on the outside looking at an opportunity to go, wow, I need that too. If I'm being completely honest with myself, I'm, I'm worse off than where they are right now. Being real is always the best thing to do. Being honest is always the best thing to do. Being humble is always the best thing to do. Casting shade on the gospel through shady conduct is the worst thing that the church can do. People find enough excuses why they don't want to serve God. Let's not give them any legitimate ones. Verse 4 starts off with a declaration and then begins a pretty diverse list of what we can call the marks of the ministry. When we get into verse 4 here, start off with this declaration, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. And then he goes on to this list, in much endurance, affliction, hardship, and difficulties. We're going to bite these off in small sections. But let's, let's look at that little, uh, you know, declaration there, what he's saying. Um, he says, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. And let's just take a look at that. These are the marks of the ministry, but the declaration, it's a universal thing in the sense that it applies to every believer. Commending ourselves as servants of God. So the implication is that we should see ourselves as servants and we should project ourselves to others as servants. Did you ever... You know, I mean, and I'm not picking on anybody, and I don't have any in mind, but when Christians act like they're big shots or celebrities or somebody important, you know, I came out of the 80s. I came out of the, you know, these mega church, big name, preachable gospel tent, sawdust, revival meeting people, and these guys were on pedestals, and they were like, you know, they were like idols. I could start naming some preachers, and do you know what? One by one, the idols got knocked down. Why, why did God do that? Why did God allow the church to be embarrassed? Why did God? Because God will not share his glory with anyone. We shouldn't bill ourselves as big shots or know-it-alls or above anybody else. That's not pleasing to God. We should present ourselves as servants of God, commending ourselves what? As servants of God, the word service can also, servants can also be translated ministers. So we minister as servants. It's servant leadership in the church. The implication is we should see ourselves as servant ministers of God, ambassadors representing him to the lost world all around us. 
the phrase commending ourselves is pretty powerful. It, it, it means, you know, how we present ourselves in the sense of how do we interact with those outside of the kingdom of God. Every day you and I go out of our homes into the world and we interact with people who are not in God's kingdom. Our neighbors, our co-workers, the people uh, on the roads next to us, the people in front of us in line getting our coffee, getting our egg sandwich. We, we are rubbing shoulders with the world. And, you know, when we are Christians, we have to present ourselves, commend ourselves in a certain way as a servant, as a minister, as someone who's humble. You know, we're interacting with the world that we're supposed to reach. Now, we have options on how we can portray ourselves. Some believers portray themselves as just regular, average, nondescript, you know, ordinary Christians. And you know what? That's probably not the best way to represent ourselves. Because you know what? Because we are ambassadors of Christ and because we're children of God and because we're born again, we should present ourselves in humility as children of God who are redeemed. There should be a sense of, of you know, like, hey, I'm, I'm just not Joe Schmo from Idaho. I'm just not nobody. No, I'm a child of God. Amen. And the thing is, they should, they should look at you as a child of God and see something in you that they don't have. Now, this is, not, this is not cockiness. This is not, you know, this is in humility. But if it's done correctly, people are going to start to notice and people are going to start to say, what is it about you that's different? If you've ever gotten that, if people come up to you and say, what is it about you that's different? You're doing this right. You're presenting yourself correctly. You know, when, when you're not doing it right, people just look at you and go, what's the matter with that guy? But they, they, never, they never say, what is it about you? Now, other believers portray themselves as super holy, ultra-spiritual, and theological know-it-alls, and they look down on everybody. Come on, that Pharisee spirit. You know, if you think that was just in the Bible, you're not paying attention. It's, it's in the world today. It's in churches today. I, I knew a person that was a new Christian, a baby Christian, and they, they were with some old Christian who was baptized in lemon juice and, and they were just all judgmental and nasty and looking down. They're looking down on a new convert and this person was playing the piano, singing a hymn and the, the new Christian started to sing along and she stopped playing and she looked at the person and said, the, the worship is only for the redeemed. And as the person told me this story, I wanted to lay hands on that old, nasty bird. <laughs> because that is the most horrible thing. I would have rather been cursed at than, you know, like this new half-converted Christian wasn't worthy to sing the hymns yet until they became part of the self-righteous club. So Christians can present themselves. Now, you know, maybe you haven't seen any of this. I've been around the block a lot. I've seen all kinds of stuff. I've seen, I mean, we can go on. I could write books. But let me just tell you, there's two extremes. We can act like we're nobody and we're nothing and we have nothing to offer, or we can act arrogant like we're above everybody else. Somewhere in the middle is that servant leader that we should present to people because it is attractive to the world when we're real and we got something they don't have. They want it and they're attracted to it. We become spiritually attractive to the lost. We're supposed to be those who draw in the lost, not kingdom scarecrows who scare them all away. Let me move on before no flesh survives. 
So we can portray ourselves in a few different ways. Servant ministers, ambassadors, that's the right way. All cloaked in humility, all cloaked in love, and all cloaked in a desire and a passion to urge others to to receive Jesus. Now the marks of the ministry start with these uh, four here, and we're going to look at a couple of them. It says, in much endurance, um, in afflictions, in hardships, and in difficulties. Let's, let's take a look at some, something here. We start with endurance. It's no accident that endurance tops the list. Why? Paul is basically saying if you're, you're going to be a good minister, a good ambassador, a good servant of Jesus Christ, you're going to need endurance. I've heard, I've heard people say, you know, Christianity is not for the faint of heart. Amen. Can anyone testify to that? You need endurance, and it's the first thing that's mentioned. Now, without a willingness to endure the cost of what it costs to follow Jesus, we're not going to make it. And, you, and Paul would, would have never certainly made it in the ministry if he didn't have, you know, a divine Holy Ghost level of endurance that allowed him to push through every obstacle. Without a willingness to endure the cost of following Jesus, a person will quickly join the ranks of those described as the seed sown in rocky places in Matthew 13. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 5 and 6, talking about the seed of the gospel falling out into the hearts of humanity. And he says here, others fell in rocky places. Say rocky, not yo Adrian rocky, hard ground, okay? Where they did not have much soil and they sprang up immediately because they had no depth of soil. Listen, Verse 6, but after the sun rose, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. So you see, if we have no desire to endure, if we have no endurance that comes from the Holy Spirit, and we're just, we want to serve God if it's comfortable, if it's convenient, if it tickles us at the moment, you know, we're going to be like those seeds that hit the rocky soil. Notice about the rocky soil. They spring up instantly. Have you ever met somebody, they, they accept the gospel, they get all excited about God, they're in church, they want to join every group, they're in, a, they're in every service, and then boom, they're gone. And you never see them again. And why is that? Because no endurance. The minute persecution comes, the minute the sun comes, the minute, the, the, the minute it's not fun anymore, the minute that the honeymoon is over, well, I didn't sign up for this. They spring up, they get scorched, and they're gone. You and I need endurance. In fact, the only reason any of us are here tonight is because the Lord put endurance in us by the Holy Spirit. None of us have made it by our own grit. Look, I know some of you, or none of us would have made it in our own grit. Certainly not. You know, well, it was my intellect. It was my fortitude. It was my good moral character. What? I'm all grace. I am a big pile of grace. Amen. There's none of that other stuff. And hopefully that you can see the grace of God in your life too. But endurance is something that we need or we're going to get scorched by the heat of what it takes to serve God. Now, notice the text says much endurance. The definition of endurance is this, the ability to withstand hardships, adversity, especially the ability to sustain a prolonged stressful effort. Wow. Let me read that again because it's powerful. What is endurance? The ability to withstand hardship or adversity, and especially the ability to sustain a prolonged, stressful 
effort. What does it take to follow after Jesus and be his disciple? A prolonged, stressful effort. <laughs> Amen? Am I telling the truth in church on Wednesday night? Anybody just had an easy time, like, you know, you're on the good ship lollipop and everything's good and it's hot tub Christianity and you, you never had a trial or a tribulation? Anybody? Because if you, if you do, I want to get counseling from you after church. Because when I got saved, it, I didn't get on, you know, a pleasure cruise. They put me on a battleship in a gun turret and they said, okay, here we go. You're under attack. It's time to stand. And that's the experience most of us have. We have a little honeymoon phase, Ricky, right? And everything's good and we love everybody and we can't, and we like the preacher and he smells so good and his tie matches. And then it's gone two weeks later. I don't like this song and why has he got to go on so long and when is this going to be over? Working hard up here. So endurance, endurance, the ability to withstand hardship and adversity, it's coming. It's coming from the enemy. It's coming from the world. It's coming from our own flesh. It's coming from our own family. It's coming from our brothers and sisters. Mm. Prolonged, stressful effort. God etched that into our minds. So we're going to need to have a measure of an endurance to, to even approach having the next three marks. And I'm going to cover the next three marks all together, and then we're going to conclude tonight. In affliction, in hardships, and in difficulties. So we need, the, we need the endurance first. Why? Because when round two comes of the marks of the ministry and what it takes to, you know, be a servant of God and to, and to be productive in the kingdom of God, we're going to face Afflictions, hardships, and difficulties. Have you ever wondered why life has to be so hard? Come on. As a Christian, I remember as a young Christian just sitting down and, and, and going, God, why does this have to be so hard? I'm doing the right thing. You're the right thing. You're the pearl of greatest price. I found you. I'm in love with you. Why so much drama? Why so much trouble? Why does it have to be so hard? Sometimes it seems like the devil is just on us all the time. And the world never gives us a break. And you know what? Let's be honest in church on Wednesday night. Sometimes it feels like the Lord is kicking our butts as well. Well, look, I got a little bit of fruit. God, I got a little bit of fruit. And he takes the pruner out. <laughs> I chasten those that I love. <laughs> Did you ever wish he didn't love you so much? Just leave me alone for a second here. Man, some of you are like stone statues, Major. I don't know, Tony. I don't know. But, you know, why does it have to be so hard? And these are questions that even the maturest of saints are going are gonna to ask towards heaven at times because life is difficult. And if we're being honest, we've all felt like it sometimes. The world's against us. The devil ambushes us at every turn. God's either silent or resisting us. You know, sometimes we can be in a situation where all of that's true. The devil's hammering us. Our flesh is hammering us. The world is against us. We're, we're in sin and God's chastening us. Man, God, are you mad at me? Yes. <laughs> Repent. Mm. 
but life is hard and there are going to be afflictions and hardships and difficulties and we're going to need endurance to face them. Paul knew this because his whole ministry was difficult. The obstacles he faced, the resistance he faced. The issue that throws a lot of us is many of us have bought into misinformation. And the misinformation we bought into is that once we choose to serve God and do the right things, everything's going to go smoothly from there on out. In fact, as a young Christian, people just told me, just do the right things, just make the right decision, just make the good choices, and everything's going to fall into place and go smooth. <laughs> nope. In fact, sometimes the more you pursue God, the more you choose to cast off the flesh, the more you choose to do the right things, the hotter and more intense the resistance becomes. We need endurance. We need endurance. We bought into a lie that said, well, if we, we make the right choice and do the right thing, it's, it's going to be easy. It's going to go smooth. And unfortunately, no, God is not looking to just please us and cater to us and pamper us. He's looking to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. It takes stress and pressure and affliction and endurance. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit. And, and there's a lot of coal in us that needs a lot of pressure to be formed into diamonds. People talk about, I got a lump of coal for Christmas. I am the lump of coal. And God's working on me to conform me into the image of Christ. The Old Testament mentions afflictions. You think, well, you know, we got, we, we, we got some things to contend with here. We got, we're going to need endurance. Uh, we got afflictions, hardships, and difficulties. And you think, well, what does the word say about afflictions? Well, it's funny that you ask because the Old Testament speaks directly about afflictions, and it doesn't suggest that we'll be free of them if we do the right things. In fact, it says quite the opposite. Listen to Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Stop. Does that seem right? How about many are the afflictions of the wicked? How about many are the afflictions of the rotten? How many about many are the afflictions of the evil? No, many are the afflictions of the righteous. You look in the world and it seems like the wicked get away with everything. And it seems sometimes like they're, they're the only team that's winning. And here's the church trying to be the church and here's the righteous trying to be righteous. And you know what? What do they got for their hard work and their effort and their endurance? Many afflictions. No one's coming back next Wednesday. <laughs> I look, I don't like this any more than you. I'm just preaching what's here. And, you know, we do the right things, and our reward sometimes for that is many afflictions. God never said that we wouldn't have any afflictions. He said we'd have many. Uh, we expect many blessings, many breakthroughs, many answered prayers, many rewards and accolades and affirmations, but not many afflictions. Now, God gives us all those things, but sometimes th there's a lot of things we have to deal with that don't make sense to us. And if we bought into that lie that says, you know, if I do the right thing, everything's going to go my way. We're going to be disappointed. We're going to need endurance, but we're going to face afflictions. God didn't say we wouldn't have afflictions, but he did promise to be with us in them. And he did promise to deliver us out of all of them. Come on. I'll be with you. God, this is a bad place I'm in. This stinks. Yeah, I'm right here with you. 
Paul's in prison. He's locked up to a wall. What was his crime? He preached the gospel. They threw him in a dungeon with, with all kinds of waste and sewage, and he sat there in the dark and in the damp dungeon, and, and, and that was his reward for doing the right thing. But God was with him, and God was with Silas. And the Bible says that they began to praise God in the midnight hour, and God was with them, and God delivered them, and he shook that place and broke the doors open, and the chains dropped off. Come on. You know the story. What's that about? That, that, that's, a, that's for us to grab onto by faith and go, you know, I might be chained up. I might be, uh, you know, persecuted right now, but God is with me, and he will deliver me. And it might not be great and fun now, but the eternal weight of glory that I will inherit for my willingness to endure persecution for Jesus Christ cannot be compared to this present suffering. Come on. So powerful. I hope this is encouraging somebody tonight. God didn't promise that we wouldn't have any trouble, any afflictions, but he did promise that he'd be with us and deliver us. The Bible also tells us exactly how we're to deal with hardships and difficulties, all these things that we need endurance for. Listen, we got hardships, we got difficulties. 2 Timothy 2.3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.5, but as for you, use restraint in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The word of the Lord for us when we face persecution and resistance and all kinds of affliction is to endure. And endurance is the first mark of the ministry. Paul had it in his life. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You and I need to pray, not that God makes things easier, not that God takes all our problems away, not that God solves all our issues so we don't have any, but that he will give us endurance to push through. The way out of whatever you're stuck in, of whatever you face today, the way out is through. It's not to retreat. It's not to shrink back. It's not to get angry. It's not to blame God. It's not to sit on the bleachers and watch life go by. It's to push through by the power of the Holy Spirit to endure and watch God make you useful in his hands for such a time as this. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you tonight, Lord God, for uh, this amazing study that we're doing here in 2 Corinthians. I pray that, Lord, even though in the middle of the week when we're, you know, we're going through the stresses of life, that, that we've come here tonight to be refreshed by your word. I pray, Lord God, that this would be refreshing to all of us, to my brothers and sisters tonight. Father, that th those that are sitting out there thinking, you know, why so much trouble in my life? Am I doing the wrong things? Father, I just pray that, that maybe you'll prove to them tonight that they're doing the right things. And that even though the situation is hot and the resistance is heavy, you're with them. And you're going to get them through and deliver them. Each one of us, Lord. You perfect the work you begun in each of us. You'll complete it. And you'll, you'll present each of us as a trophy of your grace for eternity. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.